We're still talking about the effort to reduce democracy in Ohio on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I suspect we'll be talking about it for another week. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Estalfi, and Laura Johnston. And let's start, Laura, with that topic. First, it was four former governors. Then it was five former attorneys general. Who is the latest big group of influential people opposed to the plan to schedule an August special election to sneak through a proposal that would end majority rule on changing the Ohio Constitution? These are the local county elections boards who are bipartisan, and they're saying, don't do this. It feels like a slap in the face. It's unreasonably expensive on a per ballot basis. It threatens to exhaust these election workers, and it leaves a massive constitutional questions in the hand of a thin turnout. So they care about democracy, and they're saying, don't do this. I'd like to note, they just had an election yesterday, right? So you might think, oh, they only do it, do this a couple times a year, but they're constantly getting ready for the next election or certifying the last election. It's not like they're sitting around twiddling their thumbs going, please give me something to do. So they said the last couple years have been just very trying for them. They had to push back the 2020 primary because of COVID. In 2022, we had two primaries because of gerrymandering and they couldn't get well, they never did get it together. So we had one in May and then in August. And the way that these calendars overlap, they have 90 days of prep and deadlines on the front end, another 30 days of audits on certifications on the back end. So those run into each other. They've also been accused of voter fraud. They've been dealing with people railing at them, accusing them of having fraudulent elections. So people are actually leaving their jobs in the board saying it is not worth it. You know, I'm a public servant, but I don't want to put up with this. So really strong quotes from these folks. Well, here's the other thing. The governor and the legislature abolished August yes. elections earlier this year. So all of these folks plan vacations. Right. It's the first time. It's like, oh, wow, my August is free. They abolish them. I can make plans. So they've spent money. They've made plans. And now they're trying to pull this dastardly move that would that would impede it. What are they going to do? Cancel their vacations? They lose the money. It's really not fair to their to them in their personal lives to pull the rug out after you guaranteed them with a law that you would not do this. Right. Absolutely. Some of them pointed that out. And I didn't even realize this. August 9th is a filing deadline for local nonpartisan candidates, I believe, for the November election. So they've got to certify all that. That's a huge burden. So they've already got a lot of stuff going on in, in August. And you're right. They were basically told, take, you know, we won't have this. Feel free to take it off. Um, I mean, in Sandusky County, Board of Elections Director Sherry Chagnon said her employees are exhausted. She doesn't think lawmakers are listening. We feel like we're being ignored, and I think taxpayers are being ignored. Um, in Miami County, the Board of Elections Director said the last turnout for an August election in 2022 was 9%. She said the cost per ballot, and we're talking about a $20 million election, she said that's indefensible. Uh, Auglaise said that the lawmakers in Columbus are playing games and they're, that elections officials are tired of being used as political pawns to let elected officials do whatever they want. I mean, these these are very strong statements. Well, and of course, that's what Frank LaRose is counting on. He doesn't want people to turn out because he knows if you had a larger turnout on this issue, it would go down in flames. They're trying to sneak it through in August where a tiny percentage of the Ohio population would make this change that puts 40 percent of the people in charge of the other 60 percent. 
I told you yesterday, I was like, oh, I just realized that I have a vacation scheduled for that week, right? Do I, I'm supposed to be in Canada. Am I going to cancel that, that, that vacation? And I think this is what everybody is dealing with. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really annoying. But it's even different for them because for years they have not been able to have an August vacation because there have been special elections. This was the first year they could. So they did. And now they're, they're being denied. So it's another huge group of people opposed to it. So Lisa, are we still expecting a vote this week on this move to kill majority rule when it comes to changing the constitution? We are not, because House Speaker Jason Stevens delayed any action on House Joint Resolution 1 until next week, and that's hard up against the five, the May 10th deadline, which is Wednesday, to get it on the August ballot. But he did say he only answered questions from reporters for about a minute and a half before he left, but he said this is the most important issue in the House right now. But the big question is, do House Republicans have the three-fifths vote required to pass? If you base it on 90 members in the House, that would be 60 votes. Currently, there are only 97 members in the House because one died and one resigned to take another job. That would be only 59 votes. So House Clerk Brad Young says it's up to Stevens to decide which, you know, threshold he's going to choose here. Stevens declined comment on that subject several times. So it'll be interesting to see where they go. Now, two big groups that are pushing for this, Ohio Right to Life and Buckeye Firearms Association, they've been circulating a petition of sorts. They claim to have 59 GOP signatures and letters, but they've only provided proof for 51 of those. So they still have eight, although one of them, Jamie Callender, says he supports the 60% threshold, but not the August election. Yeah, I, I think there are a variety of things that could be going on here. One could be that Stevens doesn't want to do this. And by pushing it off to next week, it, it shrinks that window to the point where the controversy will be limited to a few days. You know, by saying, oh, yeah, we're not voting on it this week. It's Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday next week. And then it's too late. So if he doesn't want to do it. That's a good stalling tactic. The second thing it may be what you said. They don't have the votes. And with the number of former governors and attorneys general and others that are coming out of the woodwork saying, don't do this, you got to think some of these members of the House are going, man, do I want to be on the other side of that? I mean, think about if this gets on the ballot, an ad in which four former governors, five former attorneys general are, are speaking strongly, saying Ohioans vote against this. This is a bad idea. The people who put this on the ballot are trying to destroy destroy your vote. Do you want to be part of the group that was responsible for that? I wonder if they are, in fact, wavering now. It's interesting. Actually, I think Stevens has been brilliant. I mean, he's basically pushing them right up against the deadline. And, you know, he's been cool as a cucumber. I have to give him credit for holding the line here. Who knows what he'll eventually do, but at least he's, you know, making it, he's not making it easy. Well, and look, John Houston wants to run for governor in, in three years, right? And he's looking at this firestorm of substantial influential people saying the legislature's trying to destroy democracy in this state. He might be leaning in saying, guys, guys, we don't want to do this. We don't want this to be our legacy because this could build momentum for the opposing party. Look, we know there's a lot of cuckoo birds in the legislature, but they're not all without brains. And anybody with a brain that looks around the country and sees every time abortion issues have been on the ballot since the Dobbs decision, the Democrats have prevailed. 
they might be thinking, I don't want to be behind this. We're going to lose and it's going to look bad for us. And they may be secretly telling Stevens, stall this, stall this. We're not going to publicly admit mm. we're killing the effort, but we're putting it all on you to do so. We'll see. Fascinating times. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Our audience gets action, we get action, and Courtney gets action. How did people answering our call for railroad facilities in bad shape lead to some formal actions to get them fixed? Courtney, this is your victory lap. This was quite a surprise yesterday. So we learned that U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown sent this this pretty strongly worded letter to the Norfolk Southern CEO, Alan Shaw, basically demanding he fix the Lake Avenue Bridge in Cleveland and a bunch of other railroad properties that have been the subject of concern from readers, city leaders, just everybody. Drive around the city, you see the poor state of these railroad bridges and properties. And and that's what Sherrod Brown was zeroing in on. So after city council held a hearing a few weeks ago to understand railway safety issues on the heels of East Palestine, I believe you, you know, you put the call out to readers to say, tell us where these problem bridges are. And and we sent photographer Josh Gunner out around the city to really document how, how bad these bridges look, rusting, crumbling concrete, you know, green overgrowth, litter, debris. And and Senator Sherrod Brown cited that story in those photographs from Josh Gunner in, in this letter to Norfolk Southern CEO saying, clean up your mess in Cleveland. I, I, I love this for so many reasons. I mean, one, Cleveland City Council does what you reported. They say, come on, we're being treated like stepchildren. They're disrespecting our neighborhoods. We, because we are serious about impact and, and doing good things in the community, say, this is a good, a good one to look at. We ask the readers, tell us where it's bad. They do because they like helping out. We illustrate it with wonderful photographs and descriptions. And Sherrod Brown then rises to the fore to say, fix it now. This is like the perfect microcosm of why it's important to have a strong media that is respected and engages with the community. This is a huge win. They have to do it now. We'll have to see if they follow through. But if they don't, we'll take more pictures. <laughs> yeah, we have to see how Norfolk Southern responds here. Local leaders say that they, and this was something echoed by Senator Brown, but, you know, just that, that Norfolk Southern and other railroad companies keep them at arm's length. They go to them with problems and they don't really get responses or it takes months and, and they're poor responses at that. So, you know, what I did found it, find interesting is that Sherrod Brown in this letter really zeroed in on one problem property that I've been aware of on, on and off for years now, uh, the, the bridge on Lake Avenue in the Edgewater neighborhood. It's, I think it's back kind of by, by Don's Lighthouse, if I'm picturing it right. Right. But, yeah. And, and so the councilwoman, Jenny Spencer out there, she was really trying to use this as an example of the problems in Cleveland. And Senator Sher Brown went out there and talked with residents and, and heard their concerns about this property in particular. And he really, he told Norfolk Southern CEO, Basically, Norfolk Southern put some plywood up under the bridge, uh, they told me, <laughs> to stop these dangerous chunks of concrete from falling on pedestrians. And and Chair Brown went out there and, and reported that now pieces of the plywood are starting to fall down. And he told <laughs> Shaw, this is not a real solution to a serious issue. And he, and he said that there was no defensible excuse for these kinds of band-aids, if that. 
Well, a big salute to Sherrod Brown and a big salute to the people who subscribe to the texts I send out every day. This really is about collaboration, everybody working together to solve a problem and well done all around. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Time is running out. What do people need to do to avoid the big electric rate increases headed our way? Laura, this feels like they keep getting bigger and bigger the closer we get to the deadline. Right. Well, some of us, the lucky ones of us, you don't have to do anything. If you got a NOPEC letter, you're enrolled and don't need to do anything, don't opt out, basically. And this is about 650,000 customers will get the cheaper price. And that's about 200 communities across the state, mostly in northern Ohio, that are part of NOPEC. Bad news if you're in Cleveland. Cleveland dropped out of NOPEC last year. They're shopping for a new municipal aggregator. That puts a lot of those residents in a weird limbo period. But the good news is you can shop on your own. Sean McDonald, who is our business reporter and writes the Saving You Money column, has gotten really detailed in instructions in this. So if you are confused, definitely go read his story. But what we're talking about is that the price for electricity directly from First Energy from the illuminating company in Ohio Edison is about 5.9 cents per kilowatt hour right now. In June, it's going to jump to 12.4 cents. That's based on auction prices they got months ago. So if you use about 750 kilowatt hours a month, you're going to jump from $44 to $93. That's a big jump. Um, about and a lot of the, it depends if you're on the standard service offer, if you've shopped around. Uh, but if you are going to get a new electricity supplier, you should do it now because you got to sign up by May 10th to, to change before June. Yeah, I, I've always opted out of NOPEC, but this time, because I've been reading Sean so closely, I'm staying in. I went to the site, the state site that lists all the prices. But I, I don't trust any of them. That apples think, to apples tool, yeah, energychoice.ohio.gov. Yeah, I just don't trust it. I, I you, you get the feeling that, that there's some sleight of hand going on. And with NOPEC, you know, based on what they've been doing lately, that they're looking out for you. I mean, that's that's seems like the safest bet. But if you don't act, I, I guarantee you we're hearing from people when this happens, whoa, what happened to my electric bill? And it's like, well, wow. you've been explaining it. Take advantage. Do it now or it's going to go up. Absolutely. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Shaker Heights playing into a slew of fake emergency calls across the country that scrambled police for fake emergencies? Lisa, there's a despicable person at the heart of this out on the West Coast. Yeah, his name is uh, Ashton Garcia. He's a 20-year-old man from Bremerton, Washington. He faces 10 federal felony counts for 20 swatting calls that he made in 11 different states, including two here in Cuyahoga County. So there's a hearing in Tacoma Federal Court tomorrow to decide if Garcia should remain jailed until the case is resolved. He's pled not guilty. So back in July of 2022, he began messaging a 12-year-old Shaker Heights girl. He told her, to photograph her parents' credit cards and send to him, or he would call police to their house. He also threatened to release nude photos of the girl. It's doubtful that those photos even existed. And then five days later, when the girl was alone at home, he called Shaker Heights police, posing as a child. He said he was locked in a closet with his sister by their father, who repeatedly raped their mom and had guns and a grenade. And so the police burst into the house. And then he later bragged online about swatting a black person. He said he just 
despised black people. And then he made two more swatting calls to this house before he left them alone. And then days later, he called in a fake bomb threat. He told Cleveland police that he planted a pipe bomb at the WJW TV studio. And of course, they went there, looked for the bomb. There was no bomb. And then later bragged online. He says, I did it just because I got bored. And he had, you know, other targets. He targeted the Los Angeles airport with a bomb threat. He threatened a transgender woman, had three swatting calls to her home. And then, um, yeah, just did something terrible in Canada. He posed as an eight-year-old boy who shot his mother. Police broke in while the family was asleep. The boy is still traumatized from that incident today. And there was uh, in Colorado, this is a really bad one. He told police that he shot his girlfriend. The police stormed the home of a teacher who had survived a recent school shooting. I, I didn't really see how he chose the geography of where he decided to attack. Why would a guy out West zero in on Northeast Ohio, but he was zeroing in on all sorts of places. And so maybe it's just completely random. And it's not known yet how he chose his victims, but that'll be interesting to see how that comes to light. But this is, yeah, swatting is just, people get killed, you know, in swatting incidents. And and there were people when he was talking about what he was doing to a 12-year-old girl who were responding to him saying, come on, it's, just, it's a 12-year-old. And he was, he, he disregarded it and just went yeah. at it. Yeah, he's a bad news guy. And uh, I'm glad they caught him. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Courtney, how are federal dollars being used in Cuyahoga County to build pickleball courts? Pickleball is the sport of the era. Everybody seems to want to play it. They can't build the courts fast enough, and they're pushing people like Laura Johnston off of her tennis courts. They are not. <laughs> they are. No, there's battles across the country on tennis courts. Because yeah, but not me. I haven't personally had a pickleball battle there. Well, well, you can soon head to Glen Willow at their Avery Lake Park, where some of this federal money is going to be used to construct pickleball courts. So you can head out that way. But in the meantime, some of this other money is is really being spread around the county. This is the county's, you know, routine batch of community development block grants. And they, they look to divide this up a- around the county, usually there for little municipal, you know, projects, parks, streetscaping, road construction, those kinds of things. And this year, Cuyahoga County's communities are on tap for $4.4 million. And a big, a big chunk of this, about $3 million, is, is available in $150,000 chunks. This year, it's going to 21 different projects around the county. And, and, you know, it looks like things like this. So in Bedford, $150,000 is going for a gazebo and train station repair. Some other money is going to replace the roof and Skylight on Brooklyn's Recreation Center, the natatorium in there. Brooklyn Heights is getting some ADA restroom upgrades. Mayfield Heights is getting some ADA playground equipment. So these kind of community needs, uh, county council kind of, and, and the county administration kind of sprinkle this around the, the county for these kinds of things. And I guess there is a big demand for pickleball courts because it's been growing so exponentially uh, and there just aren't enough. And so it's leading to all sorts of conflict. Laura, if you haven't had conflict at some of your tennis courts yet, you just might before we get too much further down the road. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A federal judge slammed the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office with an unusual ruling Tuesday, one that will cost taxpayers some money. What did the prosecutor's office do to deserve such serious treatment, Laura? Well, they withheld dozens of videos of potential abuse at the jail. 
and they didn't give them to attorneys that are suing the county. So this was in a lawsuit filed by an inmate with mental illness who said a corrections officer twice pepper sprayed him in the face for no reason in October 2019. His attorney said they tried more than 25 times over 16 months to get the video. And then Judge Calabrese ruled in December the county must give up the videos and warned the county could be on the hook to pay the attorney fees for waiting so long. So on Tuesday, that's what they did. They ordered the prosecutor's office to pay attorneys for Deontay James for the times they spent working to get the videos, which obviously they legally had to provide. Very strong language in this ruling, which is rare, by the way, said at nearly every turn, the county put up roadblocks, dragged its feet, hid the ball, and otherwise withheld discovery for improper purposes. And basically, the county tried to argue, but this is taxpayer money. You don't want to charge the taxpayers. And the judge was like, you are the one. It costs the taxpayers money. But this has been a long dispute in the court. Look, the I get that the county lawyers tried to protect the county budget by defending lawsuits, but they sound like they broke every rule that they're not supposed to break. And the judge got sick of it. And in the background, we wondered about this a couple of weeks ago. Dave Lambert, Mm -hmm. the the longtime county civil attorney, very respected. There was a move to sanction him because he tried to disqualify this judge. And the accusation was he was doing it for not, not proper reasons. He was trying to get out of this. Well, with what the judge dropped yesterday, it seems like that Lambert could face sanctions because the the county was playing games and trying to avoid giving this guy what was his due. Yeah. So Lambert did ask the judge to recuse himself. And that has, obviously the judge didn't. And the sanctions have yet to be determined. The case is supposed to go to mediation on June 28th. We don't know how much it's going to cost us as taxpayers. But the attorneys argued that they found 450 videos of potential abusive inmates. And they they agreed the county would provide 60 videos with more to come later. But that just didn't happen. And I mean, this is not a new thing for the county. I don't I don't know how many lawsuits we've talked about over the years and how many millions of dollars the county has paid out because of mistreatment on the jail. Like you think they would know the rules by now and realize they're not going to get away with this. And well, in a civil case, you got to you got to turn over the discovery. It's 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 the rule. I mean, you 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 don't have a right against self-incrimination in a civil case. You have to turn over what you've got. And it sounds like the county was told to do so repeatedly and just refused, which you can't do. And now you're right. This is extremely rare. I can't remember the last time this has happened with the Cayuga County prosecutor. You know, I just want to jump in a lot of these. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. A lot of these videos are are, are public records. Like, I mean, you talk about discovery and having to be Mm -hmm. turned over that way, but like these are publicly accessible videos that everybody should have access to. And I know we had to go to court a few times to get records related to to jail mistreatment. So it's it's kind of the county's playbook in, in some ways. Yeah, except, but it's reckless now because it's going to cost us all money. The, the lawyers that were on the other side are going to make money off of the taxpayers because the county prosecutor's office well, didn't do what was required <laughs> to, to do. To be fair, those attorneys are going to make a lot of money off the taxpayers regardless because yeah. of what the 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 jail officers did. I mean, if they did what they're accusing them of. But yes, this adds to that bill. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Lisa, which jobs in Ohio have the highest rates of work-related injuries? This is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics data for the year 2021. And number one by a pretty long shot is nursing and residential care in state-provided facilities. So their injury illness rate was 11.5% of the workforce. Number two was the same workers, nursing and residential care in private facilities at 8.1%. Number three, local government utilities, water, sewage, et cetera, 7%. Number four, couriers and messengers. Apparently 6.6% of the workforce suffered injury or illness, but the job does require a lot of travel. Number five, you'd think it would be higher, but foundry workers, that's 5.3%. That's where they do metal work at high temperatures with a lot of heavy machinery. Also falling on the list, public administration, Odd at 4.8%, hospitals, uh, local government hospitals at 4.3%, and sugar confectionery manufacturers came in number 12 at 4.2%. The lowest risk is education services at colleges and universities at seven tenths of a percent, and county and enterprise management or company and enterprise management at two tenths of a percent. Well, based on the story we just discussed with the prosecutor's office, maybe in public administration, it's because they're so busy building roadblocks to public service. (laughs) That's a weird one. I can't think of what it is with public administration. Maybe they get paper cuts, but it's it's an interesting list. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, we're the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And just out this morning, the list of the new inductees coming this fall. The list was embargoed till 810. Courtney, who is on it? One of the most exciting days of the year, right? When we get this list and 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 up for induction at, at this fall ceremony in Brooklyn is you know, I gotta start with Missy Elliott. She's a hip hop pioneer mm-hmm. and 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 she's she's on that list this year. And I believe this is the first year she's been named. And um, okay, we also have pop and RB superstar George Michael, another first timer. And um, American music icon Willie Nelson, another first-timer on the list. We've got British singer-songwriter Kate Bush and 90s pop hitmaker Sheryl Crow. We've got the, you know, what our reporter described as the hard-edge political rap rock band, Rage Against the Machine, and the 70s vocal group, The Spinners. Well, and what's what's interesting is the Rock Hall got blasted not that long ago by some some celebrity performers for being a male bastion and whoa, lo and behold, there's a bunch of women on this list. Yes. Uh, you'd think someone may have taken notice there, uh, this year. I, I, I'm, I'd also like to mention, you know, if we're talking about women icons in music, we've got to talk about, you know, the rock halls music excellence award and the nominees there. And, 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 and those awards are going to be going to R and B R&B and pop songstress Chaka Khan has been nominated seven times, but this year has made the list. We've got uh, legendary sideman and producer Al Cooper and Elton John's lyricist Bernie Taupin for that slate of awards. Meanwhile, we've got hip-hop pioneer DJ Cool Herc and guitar god Link Ray. They're going to be getting the Musical Influence Award. And then for the Rock Hall's Ahmed Erdogan Award, the big one that will be going to Don Cornelius, the producer, creator, the guy behind Soul Train. I was surprised that Bernie Toppin had never been in before because he was so mm-hmm. integral to most of Elton John's, at least his early work. So what do we think of this list? This is a good list, right? I, yeah. 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 
Laura, you mentioned that this is the first time there's a class that you consider your generation. <laughs> Maybe not the first time, but and it still has the spinners on it, which I was like, okay, which of Motown's groups is this? What did they sing? But uh, you know, Cheryl Crow, this is her first. This is a, as as early as she could be in the rock hall because you have to be 25 years out, right? So I was a teenager when she came onto the scene, and you know, all I want to do, and and so yeah, I think this does skew a little younger. It skews towards. Uh, women, which is great to see. Kate Bush, Missy Elliott. I think Willie Nelson being on this list is super fun. He just celebrated his 90th birthday. And I know the chicks were at the concert and sang Bloody Mary Morning um, at the Hollywood Bowl, I think. And so, I mean, he's a beloved icon for probably all of music. So I think everybody's going to like somebody on this list. Lisa, where are you? Where do you think? Good list? Well, yes, because I had to come to the realization, and I I can't remember who said it or how they said it exactly. They said, honestly, if you just induct rock and roll people, you're going to run out of people pretty quick. So I've come come around to like, you know, widening the eligibility. I'm thrilled to see Missy Elliott on the list and it is her first time. But then I argued the last time when we were talking about the nominees, I felt like Queen Latifah if if, you know, because Missy Elliott came after Queen Latifah who was a huge uh, you know, for female she was the first big female rapper. So I think she should be on the list pretty soon. Uh, it's interesting. I, I I hadn't thought about that. I forgot you brought that up before. Yeah, it's a wide array. And uh, I think, like Laura said, there's something for everybody. I can't believe the line she made about the spinners. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> makes, makes me feel, Classic stuff. Makes me feel old, but that's okay. You know, right. um, we, we talked to the Rock Hall president and CEO, Greg Harris. I think I'd be remiss to, to mention this. You know, all this talk about whether the ceremony is going to keep being in Cleveland and at what pace and how frequently mm -hmm. Harris did weigh in on this year. And I, I, that caught my attention. He, he apparently put to rest talk that the induction ceremonies are going to be held less frequently in Cleveland. And he said the ceremony will be here in 2024. So I found that mm -hmm. intriguing. Well, mm -hmm. and they couldn't have it here this year because they're, they're about to kick in with their big gigantic renovation and expansion uh, that that I think they want to have that done before they bring it back. So it is good. We should have it every other year. It's located here. It should be here. Uh, it's too bad that this celebration with all of these performers won't be here because it would have been cool to have them in Cleveland. Check out Malcolm's story on cleveland.com. He has a nice take on who the nominees are. It's a series of stories, actually. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 